Let us pray. O oh God, it is your property to always have mercy. It is your glory to have mercy. And so, God, we ask you be gracious to us today. Yes, we know we continually go astray from your ways. So bring us back to yourself again and again. Seek us out like a shepherd seeking out lost lambs. Search for us like the father of the prodigal looking for his son off in the distance. Bring us to yourself today so that we may, with broken and contrite hearts and with steadfast faith, embrace your revealed truth and hold fast to your unchanging word. Oh God, we give you thanks and praise for your love for us, for renewing your mercies to us every day. Today, today may we especially remember and praise Jesus Christ, your eternal Son, who was made man for us, the Word made flesh, dwelling among us. May we remember his sufferings and sacrifice on our behalf, his love shown forth in the broken body and shed blood of the cross. Lord, we thank you for his shame and suffering, our, our glory and hope. His death is our life. He who knew no sin became a sin offering for us to reconcile us to you. And so today, Heavenly Father, give us your gifts. Indeed, give us yourself through your Son. We know that our prayers and hymns would never be heard because of their beauty and eloquence, but because Christ has made a way for us and because he intercedes for us. You receive our praise with joy and with delight. Oh Lord, we know that we could never be worthy to sit at your table and eat your food. But in Christ Jesus, you have made us worthy partakers to feast upon Christ himself. We know his fasting has brought us to this feast. His prayer has opened up a way for our prayers to be heard. And so Lord, today, may we be blessed so that we might go forth from here blessing others with your love and truth. May the gifts you give to us be spread through us. May we experience mercy and grace here today so we can go out from here showing mercy and grace to others. O oh, great Father, in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit, this is our prayer. Amen. Our sermon text this morning is Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, which has been your epistle reading. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our consideration. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would be with us, that you would unveil Jesus Christ to us in the pages of this book. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Greek word for apocalypse is the very first word of the last book of the Bible. It's function, it functions as something like a title, and even if it isn't intended exactly to be a title, it does give us some hint about the direction that the book is going and the theme of the book. This book is an apocalypse, and it gave its name to a whole genre of literature. Uh, many of the uh, particular texts in which are, uh, were written before the Apocalypse and were given the title Apocalypse after this Apocalypse was written. But understand how that first word of the last book of the Bible sets the trajectory for the book of Revelation 
we have to understand what that word apocalypse means. And to do that, we have to put out of our mind some of the ways that we use the word apocalypse and apocalyptic in our day. We're surrounded by talk of apocalypse. There are zombie apocalypses. There are ecological apocalypses. There are mechanical apocalypses when the machines finally take over and take their revenge and get smart enough to control the creators of those machines. Every summer we have a series of post-apocalypse blockbuster movies. And the theme of all of those is that the world has ended. Only one or two or a few people are left. The city is abandoned. You're out in the middle of the desert. There are shaved, painted road warriors zipping around with weaponized four-wheelers. When we think of apocalypse, that was, that's what we think of. We think of the end of the world, horrifying monsters, whether they're mechanical or zombies or something else. And some of those elements do come into the apocalypse. And in fact, the reason why we call those movies apocalyptic movies is because of some resemblances to the book of Revelation. There are monsters in the book of Revelation. There are dangers. A world does come to an end in the apocalypse. But that's not what the word means. And in order to understand how the first word of Revelation sets the trajectory for the whole book, we have to recognize what the Greek word originally meant. It doesn't mean the end of the world. It doesn't mean catastrophe. The word apocalypse means an unveiling. It means that something is being uncovered. Something that was hidden is now being disclosed. Secrets are now being told. The book of Revelation is a book of secrets, book of mysteries that we would not understand or know unless John had received these revelations, these visions, and disclosed these things to us. The book of Revelation is the unveiling of things that we could not know unless God had by his spirit unveiled them to John and John had written them down for us to read a couple of thousand years later. Apocalypse is the first word of the Greek, uh, of the Greek, uh, uh, the Greek original of Revelation, but it's part of a phrase. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And as soon as we say that phrase, then we're left with a dilemma. What do we mean by of? In what sense is this the apocalypse of Jesus Christ? It could be that Jesus is the one who is disclosing the secrets. He's the one who's doing the unveiling. And there is a good bit of that in the book of Revelation that, that bears out. If we think this is the unveiling that is done by Jesus Christ, that does set the trajectory for the book as a whole. Jesus unveils many things to John during the course of Revelation. John gets to go into heaven. He's never been in heaven before. You've probably never been in heaven before. Heaven is unveiled to John and therefore to us by Jesus. A beast comes up from the sea. This beast represents the Roman Empire. But if you looked at Rome, it wouldn't look like a beast. If you looked at Rome, you would see impressive physical architectural structures, colosseums and temples. 
You'd see Roman soldiers marching. You might imagine a Roman court. You would see all these things that make up Roman civilization. But in order to see Rome as a beast, as a monster, Jesus has to unveil it for John. And that's what happens. He unveils Rome, at least in this phase of its history, as a monster disguised as a civilized order. John sees a city. The city is called Babylon, but the city represents the city of Jerusalem. This city is depicted as a woman, and the city is a prostitute. Jerusalem didn't go around presenting itself as a prostitute. Jerusalem didn't advertise itself as a harlot city. In order to see that Jerusalem has become a harlot city, Jesus has to unveil Jerusalem to John. He has to disclose that secret. The book of Revelation is uh, Jesus unveiling and unmasking things that John would not understand properly otherwise. That's one way to take the opening phrase, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. But, of course, that of could mean something else, too. It could mean, and it does mean, that Jesus is doing the unveiling. He's telling the secrets. Or it could be that Jesus is the one about whom secrets are being told. It's the unveiling, not that's performed by Jesus, but it's the unveiling of Jesus himself. Jesus is being disclosed to us in the book of Revelation in some fashion. And I want to suggest that that too is the meaning of the phrase at the opening of Revelation. It means both. Jesus is doing the unveiling. Jesus is also being unveiled. Jesus' glory is being disclosed to us through the course of the book of Revelation. As soon as we say that, that though, we're left with a puzzle. Because when we read the whole book, it doesn't seem to be about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It doesn't look like the whole book is about Jesus being disclosed to us, about secrets being told about Jesus. And I'm going to make that point in three different ways, just to, not to belabor it, but just to reinforce why I say that. But before that, I want to reflect a little bit on why it's important to have some sense of the shape of the book. What does it matter? We might think that a, the ordering of a book is just a form, and the really important part is the content that you put into the form, but that's not the case. When we tell a story, it has to take a certain form, or it doesn't communicate what it's supposed to communicate. Tell a joke, like some of your kids might do, with the punchline first and see how that goes over. The punchline should come last. Tell a detective story where the detective calls all the suspects and principals of the story into the drawing room and discloses the secrets who did the murder. It's the butler. Imagine that that's done in chapter 2. Would you keep reading? Unless the writer is doing something clever with the genre of detective fiction, you expect that scene to take place at the end. Imagine a tragedy where everyone's dead in Act 3. What do you do then? Watch the corpses on the stage for the next two acts? No, everybody dies at the end of a tragedy. Everybody gets married at the end of a comedy, not in the middle. That would be a distorted, that would be a a misshapen, a lopsided comedy. And I want to suggest that Revelation 
as the unveiling of Jesus Christ, as secrets about Jesus Christ, appears to be a lopsided book. It doesn't seem to be arranged properly. In fact, I believe it is, but in order to show how it is, I want to discuss the shape of the book of Revelation in three different ways. Three different things that indicate the lopsidedness, the oddity of the shape of Revelation. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ in his glory. But before the end of chapter 1, Jesus Christ has been unveiled. Uh, Jacob stopped reading at verse 8, but if you continued reading in chapter 1, you find that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears a voice behind him. He turns to see the voice that's speaking to him, and when he turns, he sees one like the Son of Man. This one like the Son of Man has a head and hair white like wool, like glistening snow. His face shines like the sun. He has a sword coming from his mouth. He is the voice, the embodied voice, the incarnate voice of God that's now, that was speaking to John. John sees Jesus in his glory unveiled before him and falls at his feet like a dead man. And Jesus raises him with a touch and tells him to write letters, messages to the four, to, to the seven, seven churches of Asia. That's an unveiling of Jesus. But that takes place in chapter 1. It's like telling the solution to the detective story before you get out of the introduction. What, what are the rest of the chapters doing there? If Jesus has already been unveiled to John at the beginning, if he's been shown in his glory, why do we need the rest of the book? We have the same question. This is the second way I'm making the same point. We have the same question when we look at the book as a whole. Again, it seems to be lopsided. Insofar as it's an unveiling of Jesus Christ, it seems to be a lopsided arrangement of the book. Revelation is a complicated book, but the simplest way to outline is it, outline it is to see it's organized around four visions. Four times, John says, I was in the Spirit, and then Jesus gives me a vision or a series of visions. I was in spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me, and I turned and I saw Jesus. That's an unveiling of Jesus Christ, the unveiling that I've already described. A few chapters on, Jesus, uh, John again says, I was in spirit, and a voice called to me from heaven, and I was caught up and taken into heaven. And in heaven, he sees the heavenly worship service going on. He sees the ancient ones and the four living creatures surrounding the throne of God and worshiping in a continuous round of worship. He sees the heavenly worship service, the heavenly liturgy going on, but there's a problem in heaven. There's a book to the right side of the one enthroned in the center of heaven, and no one is no one in heaven is able to open the seals on the book. And then suddenly, announce, an announcement rings through heaven, the lion from the tribe of Judah has come. John turns and sees a lamb looking as if slain, and the lamb takes the book and begins to open it. That is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is unveiled as the glorious Son of Man in chapter 1. He's unveiled as the slain lamb who is the lion of Judah, who has now taken his throne in heaven in chapter 4 and 5. But chapter 5 is only a third, not even a third of the way through the book. It's a quarter of the way through the book. Jesus has been disclosed. Jesus has been unveiled. 
And then the lamb, Jesus, the son of man, seemed to disappear from the story. Long stretches of revelation, and Jesus is not there. This is part of the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is part of his unveiling. doesn't look like it. Then you get to the third vision in chapter 17. John is again in spirit, and this time he's taken in spirit, and he's taken out to the wilderness. He doesn't see Jesus. He sees, his, he sees Babylon. He sees Babylon, the false bride, the harlot bride, riding on the back of a beast, drinking the blood of the saints. And as he watches, he sees the harlot city overthrown, the beast turn against the harlot, the harlot get drunk on the blood of the saints, and the harlot city collapses and falls. That's a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's one of the major visions, one of the major divisions of the book. How is that an unveiling of Jesus? It's an unveiling of a false bride, an unveiling of a the overthrow, overthrow of a harlot city. How is that the unveiling of Jesus? Then the fourth vision. The fourth vision does include a vision of Jesus. The lamb is in the city, but the thrust of the vision, the main focus of the vision, is the descent of the new Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, down to earth. John is again in spirit. He's again taken, he's taken from the wilderness up to a high mountain. He sees another city, another woman, another bride. This one is not a false bride. This one is a true bride, prepared for her husband, descending from heaven, sharing the glory of God and of the Lamb. The structure of Revelation moves from unveiling of Jesus as son of man, as the lion lamb of Judah, to something that is, it's unveiled, but it doesn't seem to be an unveiling of Jesus. The unveiling of the false bride. The unveiling of the true bride, New Jerusalem. How is that the unveiling of Jesus Christ? The book seems lopsided. The book doesn't seem to be about the unveiling of Jesus. That takes place in the first five chapters, and it's virtually over by that time. Then other things occupy the rest of the book. How is this the unveiling of Jesus Christ? Let me make the the same point a third time in a slightly different way. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That's a quotation from uh, from Daniel 7. Daniel 7 was our Old Testament reading this morning. And Daniel 7 shows us a vision that Daniel received of beasts coming up out of the sea representing different empires. And eventually those beasts are overthrown and their dominion and power is given to one like a son of man who ascends on clouds to receive his kingdom. That's what John is referring to in chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Some son of man, John is saying, in the course of this book, some son of man is going to come on the clouds and is going to ascend and receive dominion and glory and a kingdom. And we expect that this is going to be a story about a king who fights his way to the throne, defeats all his enemies, finally at the end receives his throne, finally at the end is coronated and enthroned. But that all happens in the first few chapters. Jesus is already the son of man at the end of chapter 1. He's already received his kingdom when he ascends as the lion lamb in chapter 5. 
Why does John tell us that this is about the coming of the Son of Man into this dominion and glory if Jesus already has it at the beginning? It's a lopsided book. It purports to be the unveiling of Jesus Christ, but that's all over a quarter way through the book. It purports to be a story about the Son of Man coming into his kingdom, but that's over before it begins. Jesus has already ascended before John ever receives any of these visions. How is the whole book an unveiling of Jesus Christ? I'm not obsessing over the first phrase or the title. I'm pointing to the way the title sets up certain expectations and a trajectory for the whole book. And when we read the whole book as the revelation and the unveiling of Jesus Christ, we get a clue to the depths of what this book is revealing to us. We get the really big secret that this book is disclosing. Jesus already has all dominion and authority and power at the beginning of the book. But this book is about an enthronement and a coronation. It is about someone ascending to a throne. Not Jesus, but the saints, and especially the martyrs. Jesus occupies his throne at the beginning, but only at the end of the book, the climax of the book, the punchline, only then do we see those who are beheaded for their testimony to Jesus. Only then do we see them on thrones. John says he's telling the story of the enthronement of the Son of Man, the ascension of the Son of Man. But if we look at the whole book, we see that the Son of Man is not ascended until we ascend with him. The Son of Man has not come into his kingdom and dominion until he shares his kingdom and dominion with us. That's the fullness of the kingdom of Jesus. The story is not about Jesus' reception of power and dominion. It's about his conferral of power and dominion and a kingdom. As our gospel reading says, I grant to you a kingdom that you may sit at my table and sit judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what Revelation is about. It's not about the ascent of Jesus into his glory and to his kingdom. It's about our, our ascent. But the secret is, the stunning secret is that Jesus' own ascent is not completed until we share it with him. Jesus is not son of man fully come into his kingdom until the martyrs are on thrones too, until we're sharing his rule and authority and dominion with him. And we can say the same thing about the unveiling of Jesus. The same logic works when we look at the title, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is unveiled to us in his glory in the first chapter. He's unveiled to us the, the exalted Lamb of God, this Lamb slain from the foundation of the world in, in, toward the beginning of the book. But the unveiling of the glory of Jesus is not completed yet until we see the saints sharing his sufferings, shedding their blood, which is the blood that overthrows the harlot city, that's when Jesus' glory is more fully disclosed. Not Jesus himself suffering, but his saints suffering in and with him. And then the full disclosure, the full unveiling of the glory of Jesus is not seen until his bride is unveiled. 
We don't see the full glory of Jesus until he sheds that glory on his bride, until his bride comes in to share that glory and that light and that brightness and that radiance. Paul tells us that the woman is the glory of the man. Revelation tells us that this is true also of the man, of Jesus. We, we are the glory of Jesus. We are the full disclosure of his glory and his power. You are the bride. You are the radiance of Jesus' glory. And his glory is not complete. He is not fully glorified until he's glorified in you. You are the fullness of the one who fills all in all. That is the deep, great secret that the apocalypse discloses to us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is ascended, that he reigns, that he is full of glory. And we thank you for the unthinkable privilege that we share in that glory, that we share in his power and his dominion. We praise you for what this book teaches us, that the glory of Jesus Christ is not complete until he shares it with us, his bride. And we pray that you would deepen our love and devotion to you as we contemplate these things. Help us to know the great privilege we have through your son Jesus, that we sit in your, at your right hand with him, reigning over the nations, sharing in his glory as the queen of all things. We pray in this in Jesus' name. Amen.